The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember when he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mamie. As we uh, prepare to look at this passage and unpack it a bit, why don't we pray together? Father, you're good, and all you do is good. We thank you for the message of the cross, and we thank you for the message of the empty tomb. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. It is your resurrection that brings meaning and purpose and power to our lives. Father, I pray that you would come by the power of your spirit and you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that we would be blinded no more to the power of the resurrection, to the hope of the resurrection, and that you would we can let go of the things of the world because you have us because there is a greater glory and a greater reality waiting for us. Father, I pray that you would do your work. Father, even use me. Speak through me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, wrote an article this past week um, and it's called The Five Lies That Our Culture Tells Us. And one of those lies is this, namely that you can find your own truth, not only that you can find your own truth, but it's up to you to find your own truth. And to that lie in our culture, that our culture tells us, he, he writes this, everybody chooses his or own values. Come up with your own answers to life's ultimate questions. You do you. The problem with this is that unless your name is Aristotle, you probably can't do it. Most of us wind up with a few vague moral feelings, but no real moral clarity or sense of purpose. Now what is troubling to me is it's not just a lie of the culture, but I believe also it's a lie in the church. I mean, haven't we all heard people, even friends, even believers say, hey, you just do you. And what's troubling about that is that Christ did not live, die, and rise again that we can do us, but he lived, died, and rose again that we can do him. 
It's by finding our identity in Him and by translating life and, and reality through the lens of His life, death, and resurrection that brings real meaning and identity to us. It's not us looking within us. It's us looking within Jesus. But the only way that that makes sense is, is if Jesus really rose from the dead. You see, the gospel writers and the other apostles they were arguing not for a metaphorical or hypothetical resurrection. This wasn't just a principle of life, but this was a reality to them. They were arguing for a literal, physical resurrection. And it's even if you don't believe it this morning, it is evident, even just from a literary, a cursory literary um, glance at the text, that this is what they were proposing. They weren't proposing anything metaphorical or hypothetical. Got that jelly bean? I'm so get them all, get them all. That's what I, I absolutely. You can't let a good jelly bean go to waste. Uh, <laughs> so, let's be clear. Either the resurrection happened and it didn't. And if it didn't, then why in the world are we here? You, you see, if it were some myth, if this was some made-up story, they did a horrendous job telling it. For really four reasons. One, because women were the primary witnesses, as we see in our text, of the resurrection. And... We think, and, and it's true, I mean, um, you know, women's rights today are really at the forefront, and that is a good, good thing. But in this day, in the first century, a woman could not even give testimony in court because their testimony um, would not be believable. And yet, the primary witnesses, the primary um, um, testimony um, for the resurrection came first and foremost from women. There is no way on the planet, if these were trying to make up a story to get other people to believe it, that they would have used women as the primary witnesses. Number two, Jews were the primary converts. And Jews were the last people on the planet <laughs> to believe in a physical, literal resurrection of the Messiah. Jews would not even say the name of God. Even today, Jews write the word God, G-D. Why? Because they have such a transcendent view of God. God does not take on flesh. God does not dwell among us. God does not eat fish on the seaside. God does not fish. God does not do any of the things that we see Jesus doing. And yet, overnight, Jews are believing that their whole paradigm of who God is and what he's like changes on a dime. Why? Because the resurrection was real. You see, if it was myth, if you look at um, um, people today that study how um, you know, cultural beliefs come to be, it's always over time. Somebody makes some ridiculous radical statement, and everybody goes, ah, oh, forget him. But there are a few people that go, ah, oh, okay. And, and then they start gathering, and then after a while it becomes a movement, and, and it's mainstream culture. But nothing happens overnight like this. 
And yet it happened overnight. Why? Because it was true. That's the only explanation. And then thirdly, the gospel accounts are way too detailed to be myth. I mean, who in the world in their right mind would tell us that the women come back, tell the disciples, and what are the disciples, what does Luke say the disciples think about this whole message that Jesus rose? They thought they were, remember the words, idle tales. <laughs> We're looking at, you know, if you read on and toward the end of chapter 24 in Luke, um, uh, in Luke 24, toward the end of that chapter, um, Jesus, you know, appears to them and he says, hey, I'm not a ghost. Touch me. You, you see these details, then they eat together. You know, why would Luke put in these details of them having a meal? Because he had one agenda, and that was to show that this Jesus who had died rose. And then, fourthly, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. We see this in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse uh, 6. Paul wrote, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What is, what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, if you don't believe me, go ask the 500 that are walking around that saw him. I mean, this literally happened. And so what we have to see this morning is if it happened, then what is the impact on us as Christians? You say, Richard, your message is not to be for us Christians. You're supposed to get those people that come to church once a year. But I believe there is a tremendous deficiency in the theology of the resurrection in the church today. And it's evidenced by how we live. So we need to hear the message before we tell anybody else. And the first thing that we need to see is that the resurrection of Jesus cures us, heals us of our deep FOMO, fear of missing out. Let me illustrate this. Um, during our men's retreat, the speaker, um, just a few weeks ago, the speaker had us break into groups and just share our hearts and how we were experiencing, um, you know, dissatisfaction with life and broken dreams and, you know, unfulfilled expectations and so forth. And one of the men in our group of four, um, about my age, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, um, said, you know, I really thought that by now I would have accomplished a whole lot more than I have. And he nailed it. <laughs> he nailed it. Because I'm in my 50s, and anybody in their 50s or 60s, if you haven't felt that, I think you're, you're probably lying. Because, you know, we, we've come out of the locker room, we've lived and played the first two quarters of, of life, we've gone through halftime, and we know we're at least in the third quarter, if not the bottom of the fourth. <laughs> and this fear can grip us. We've seen it. Why do marriages 20, 30 years in all of a sudden dissipate? It's FOMO. It's I haven't been satisfied. I haven't, you know, I've been in this marriage and it's not satisfying me, so I'm going to try another marriage. I'm going to try another woman. I'm going to try another man. I'm going to get a convertible. I, you know, I'm going to dye my hair. I'm going to join our Iron Tribe or something. I don't know, you know. I'm going to do something because the end is in sight. All my blind ambition, all my dreaminess as, as a youth is gone, and now I am facing the reality of coming down the backside of the mountain. It's, it's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. 
us older, wiser, more vintage people, like a fine wine. Come on, Davis. Uh, we're not the only ones that are dealing with this. In fact, we're learning that college students today are more anxious, more stressed out, and more depressed than ever before. The second leading cause of death among college students is suicide. And, and I believe that that is trending downward. Um, we saw it just last week at White Station High School. A young man took his own life. And like many other youth, they are pointing now to, I mean, there were no signs. He was uh, healthy. He was, you know, seemed like he had a lot of friends. He, one person said he had a smile on his face. But then you start looking at it, and, and social media bullying is what they call out. And, and I am not one of those preachers who says the Internet is of the devil and an iPhone is of the devil and a computer. No, I don't think technology is from the devil. But I do think that the devil can use any good thing and make it an absolutely destructive thing. And what we're seeing today is this, this really false reality. The, the, you know, the, the illustration I used earlier that just came to me, uh, it's kind of scary how my mind works, but was you know, a pig with lipstick and a dress on. <laughs> I mean, that's really what social media platforms, you know, they might be attractive at first, but the closer you get, and once you take off the layers, you realize what's really there. And, and that's the reality of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And yet, these are powerful tools that are really reformatting our brains and bringing us into a lifestyle of addiction. And this is not just for college students and um, high school students and, and, and junior high students. This is for grandparents. I've literally, we've all seen it. I mean, I've literally watched grandparents in a restaurant on their phones looking at Facebook, not saying one word to each other. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is happening. I mean, it is addictive behavior. It really is. But what we're understanding is that these false connections are really just an illusion that we're not really growing closer, we're not feeling more connected, but we're feeling more isolated. And we all know how it happens. We, 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 uh, you know, we, we've had a long week, we just can't wait to get home on a Friday night and not go to the party and not go out, but we're going to get on our couch and we're going to you know, stream Netflix and it's going to be awesome. And right before you, you know, Netflix is coming on, the, you know, the Netflix thing comes on, you say, all right, I'm just going to look on uh, Facebook just for a second, and you see all your friends at the 901 FC game, and they look like they're in heaven. You know, they're, ah, you know, their faces are painted, there's smoke rising in the background, and what happens? You begin to feel insignificant and worthless. You're sitting in your office, you're having a great day, things are going well, you pull up Instagram and there's, all you see are like, you know, toes and this, you know, sparkly blue water and sand and, you know, beach and all of a sudden you feel worthless. And it's funny, but it's real. And, and, and it's really sucked us into the point that not being left out, not being left behind, but being in, understanding what's going on all the time, everywhere, is a 24-7 job, and it is killing us. We can't even rest. We never turn off, and it's literally killing us. I, I, you know, I've never heard of Nipsey Hussle. 
<laughs> and all of a sudden, he gets shot in front of his store, and man, just all these messages, my notifications are going off. Nipsey Hussle shot him like, who is Nipsey Hussle? Well, in about 30 seconds, I knew who Nipsey Hussle was. I mean, and if you didn't know who Nipsey Hussle was and that he got shot, then you were out and obviously way behind the times, and you just kind of need to go, you know, flog yourself or something. It's social suicide. So the resurrection, what, what does the resurrection have to do with all this, this fear of missing out, this anxiety? Well, here's the problem. Our addiction to the present is just that. We literally are so anchored to the present that we can't look to the future. And the hope of Christianity and the message of Christianity is an incredibly glorious future that gets us through the suffering and everyday living in this life. And if you have Jesus as your Savior, but He is not your resurrected Lord who is bringing the new heaven and a new earth, then your life here is going to be little different from anybody else around you that doesn't believe it. And so you can't just be consumed with the moment. You can't just be right here and what's happening. Oh, I got to know. I got to know. I got to. I got to keep reading. I wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, I got to pick up my phone. It's my. I got to know. You cannot be anchored to the moment only and live for Jesus out of the glorious hope of the resurrection. You can't do it. And that's exactly what C.S. Lewis was pointing out in his work. He talked about, he, he, he has a famous argument for God from desire within us. And listen to what he says. He said, if we consider the promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. And then he goes on. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for their desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe or God is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings like candy and an egg. But on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo of mirage. Oh, that's so good. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. You see, the resurrection of Jesus secures our true country, our true and real future. Jesus died. That's Good Friday. And it's, it's not hard for us to understand that. We have all been to funerals. We have all seen our loved ones in the coffin. But here's the thing. 
as Christians, the story does not end there. This is not a period. The coffin, death, the grave is not a period. It's not the end in this life. Because in Christ, Jesus died, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose and ascended on high and is coming back and we will meet the Lord in the air. This is the hope that we have and it's a real hope. Yes, it is a real hope. Revelation 21, I love the book of Revelation, not because I understand it, but because the parts I do understand are extremely encouraging. And the picture that we get in Revelation 21 is not some spaceship coming over and kind of, you know, transporting us, transporting us up to some immaterial existence and, you know, kind of uh, a fluffy cloud-like existence forever sitting around trying to, you know, doing nothing. But in Revelation 21, what we see is heaven coming down, new heaven and new earth coming down. And it looks just like this earth, and, but it's better. It is a new heaven and a new earth. It's earthly. It's like Jesus' body. He says, touch me. I'm, I'm, I'm risen. Now let's go eat together. And yet, he can also just materialize. You know, the disciples are in a room. The doors are locked. They're trying to be protected. They're scared of their enemies. And Jesus just kind of materializes. He's not bound to, um, you know, just the physical properties of life. He's better. I, I think about the new heaven and the new earth uh, like my experience with the first Tesla that I ever got to sit in. I was in a mall in Denver, and they had an SUV, a Tesla SUV. And I got in, and I'm looking around at all the new stuff. And I'm looking at doors that, you know, just kind of open up like that. Just kind of step in, I'm in the driver's seat, you know. I've got that big iPad thing, you know, the touch screen, uh, I've got this panoramic view. I didn't know what I was missing. I didn't even know that I desired the things that were in that car until I saw it. You see where I'm going? You see the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be better. We can't even, we don't even know how our desires are going to be fulfilled. We think we desire strongly now. Oh, just wait. You think we experience goodness now. Oh, just wait. You see, that's the resurrection. There is a future to look forward to that is material, that is so much better than our existence in this world that we don't miss out on anything by putting our hopes in it. I mean, what this means is that we miss out on nothing in this life. And that is more powerful than you can possibly imagine. If you are single here today and you're scared to death that you're never going to get married, well, let me tell you something. If you're a believer in Christ, you're going to have the most glorious wedding and the most glorious wedding feast than you could ever, ever, than your parents could ever, ever afford on this earth. You are going to be sitting at the table with Jesus feasting at the wedding feast of the Lamb. You're going to feel more singled out and loved and gloried. You're going to feel more connected. You're going to have the love that you are longing for right now. It is coming. Let me tell you something. Married people, you think you have a great marriage, you just wait. Are you in a horrible marriage? You just wait. See, you can because there's something so much better coming. I mean, this is the glorious. You, you, you're tired of your body. You hate your looks. You, you, you wish you were smarter. You wish your work were more fulfilling. Whatever it is, 
If Jesus literally died and literally rose, and there is a literal new heaven and new earth coming, then any blessing in this life is but a speck in comparison to what you're going to experience. Friends, I don't think the church believes that. Because secondly, there's no way to believe the resurrection and live like we do, live the same way. Let me illustrate this more. What if I told you that your team was going to win the national championship or the world championship, the world cup, whatever it is, and whatever sport and whatever competition? What if I said, I guarantee you, I've seen the future and your team wins. Is that going to make you disengaged or more engaged? I would bet it's going to make you more engaged. If you told me right now that the Arkansas Razorbacks were going to be the NCAA football champions, I'm telling you right now, I might buy season tickets. I might get a little camper and so I can go tailgate, get there a day, day early. I, I might start investing. Why? Because i got to see this. And, and when it's third, you know, third quarter, end of the third quarter, first of the fourth quarter, and we're down 30 to zero, what do I do now? I turn it off because I just can't handle the pain any longer. But oh, if I knew they were going to win, I wouldn't turn it off. I would get closer. I'd say, I got to see how this is going to turn out. Friends, what are you going through right now? Oh man, my job's just horrible. I, you know, I, my finances are in a mess. My marriage is hard. My relationships are rough. My children are really struggling. Oh, guess what, dear friend? One day, someday, one day, someday, your Lord Jesus is coming and you're going to experience glory like you've never experienced it before. So hang in there. The resurrection doesn't make us as believers too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. It makes us earthly good. We're the only ones that can be earthly good. Let me tell you how this works. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, you all know, most of you know what he's dealing with. Somebody tell me, what, what sin or sins is Paul addressing in the church in Corinth? What, what kind of sins are they? All right, immorality. What kind of immorality? Sexual immorality. Drinking too much. Going to the Lord's table and to get drunk and gluttonous. All right? Uh, divorcing. Remarrying, I mean, all these things. Uh, there are no jelly beans, man. I'm sorry. Uh, she got them all. Uh, <laughs> you're fine. You are just fine. He's like, man, I was robbed. Robbed of jelly beans. Um, no idea where I was. Let me, let me, let me. Oh, yeah. Corinth. Corinth. Um, so Paul writes to them, and he doesn't just say, stop all that. Shacking up, like Amber said. Stop all that sexual stuff. Stop drinking too much. Do you know where the longest um, explanation and apologetic for the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus is? Corinth. Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest treatise on the resurrection. Why? Because their sexual immorality, their drunkenness, all of these sexual sins, not willing to remain married and so forth, was an indication of a deficiency in their, um, um, their theology of the resurrection. Paul could tell that they weren't believing the resurrection by the way they were living. 
And he said, look, it is only when you believe that Jesus rose and from, literally rose from the dead and you were trusting a literal resurrected Jesus that you can stop, that you can pro, um, um, postpone your sexual desire, that you can postpone your desire for money, you can postpone your desire um, to feel you know, the euphoria of drunkenness. It's only when you understand that this world is not it that you can, and there is a world coming that you can say no to sin in this life. That is the only person that not only can do it, but should do it. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul said, if the dead are not raised, then go create religions and everybody just kind of live morally. No. He said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and get married. He's saying, let us have the party of all parties. Let us live like the most pagan of all pagan. If the dead are not raised, you are a fool seeking goodness. But if the dead are raised, you can seek goodness. You can deny yourself. You can live in a different direction because you have a greater day coming. Look at Jesus' life. How could he leave the throne room of heaven and live like a pauper on this earth? I mean, if even his resurrection was not that... I mean... If it were me, I would have said, world, watch this. It would have been like Superman flying through the air. Oh, I'm alive. Yes, I am. I would have had a cape and a, re you know, I would have had trumpets. Even his resurrection is, is, is mysterious and humble. Like, come on, Jesus, you can do better than that. I mean, don't you say he doesn't need it. He's not after, you know, recognition. And then, finally, the real question is, are we Christians giving the world a reason to believe? I'm really convinced that if I were not a Christian, I, don't, I think I would really struggle to be convinced to accept Jesus on the basis of the testimony of the church today. The way... We handle sex, money, work, um, the way we view the church, and the way we view issues like justice and uh, the poor is, to be honest with you, non-convincing. Um, if you just take Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, look, let the thief steal no longer but let him work diligently at his work, at his job, so that he can have something to share with the poor. Okay, let's just take that one application. If everybody in this room all of a sudden just switched their purpose for working, not to make as much money as you can for you and yours, to live the most comfortable life that you and yours can, but if you just change that too, I am working so that I have something to share with the poor. Memphis is the poorest city in the country. And we are the most church city, I would say, in the country. That is a problem. If Paul were writing us a letter, he would say, do you people believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Because you don't live like it. You're not giving your money like you have a hope. That You're not living your money like you're freed by the hope of glory. You're not working like you are freed by the hope of glory. 
You're running after sex and uh, you're divorcing and you're shacking that. You're living. There's no difference between you and the world. And look at your church. Your church is nothing more than uh, um, a, a, a self-interest group built around your cultural idols. There's no power in your community. You're just protecting your own heart. You, you hire a preacher that's going to tell you what you want to hear. I mean, it's the same message that, that God was telling his people in Hosea and Amos and the prophets of old. It's the same old thing. But if we come back to the doctrine of the resurrection, if we will believe that Jesus died Jesus rose, Jesus is coming again, there is a new heaven and a new earth, then we of all people can be a community that lets go of hoping in this world because our hope is rooted and founded in another world. I love what David Brooks says when he is talking about this whole idea of you have to find your own truth. He, he ends with this in that little section. He says, the reality is that values are created and passed down by strong, self-confident communities and institutions. That's how values get out there. People absorb their values by submitting to communities and institutions and taking part in the conversations that take place within them. It is a group process. Dear friends, that's why we want downtown church to be different. That's why we want downtown church to be a real community. We do everything that we possibly can to try to put forth that this is not a consumer. The gospel and church is not a consumer product. It is a community-oriented reality. We have, to we have to embrace each other. We have to believe this message and actively repent. And we need each other to do it. We need to be a repenting community that shows to the world that we believe. They don't have to believe it, but we believe that Jesus died and Jesus rose and Jesus is coming again. And the best is yet to come. It's not, may we eat and drink because tomorrow we die. It's may we eat and drink because tomorrow we're in glory. And let me share my food. And let me share my drink. And let me share my money. And let me share my house. And let me share my clothes. And oh, I'm concerned about you in the corner. I'm concerned about you who is uh, unjustly arrested. I'm concerned about you when, when um, uh, you are uh, targeted. I'm concerned about you. Why? Because God's concerned about me. Do you see, if we become that kind of community, that's what will sweep through this city and this world. And people will say, you tell me about that Jesus. I want to at least hear the message that you people believe. The, only, the question is not, will the resurrection change us? The only question is, will we believe it? Will we? Will you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you lived. Thank you that you rose from the dead and that we have good news. Lord, I pray that you would pierce the hearts of each believer in this room, oh God, mine included, that I might live radically different 
Oh God, would you shake us from our consumption with self? Would you shake us from our comfortable lives? Would you help us to know what it means to give ourselves to our neighbor because we've already given ourselves to you? Oh God, would you sweep through this church? Would you sweep through this part of Memphis? Would you sweep through this city and this region and this world that the fame of Jesus, of a resurrected Jesus, might be known and might be believed once again? Lord, walk with us as we walk with you. We need you, O oh Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May we respond to the goodness of our Lord Jesus as we bring his tithes and offerings at this time and contemplate what it is we might let go of in this world. If we really believe the resurrection, what would Jesus have us let go of freely, gladly, that the world might know that he lives?